Reality Escape Pod is made possible by Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline you need to get away from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring the immersive gaming world from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today, we are joined by the wild optimist, Juliana Moreno-Patel and Ariel Rubin best known for creating the Escape Room in a Box series. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having us. In spite of popular opinion and maybe even appearances, you are, in fact, not sisters. (laughs) I really want to know, how did you two meet? We actually met because we have a mutual friend, Jason. Arielle knew him from high school, so she'd known him forever. And then I was in an acting class with him. And he was like, oh, you're into games. You should come play a game. And I went and played Catan with him and some of his other friends. And Arielle was not there. But they kept being like, it's like Arielle is in the room with us. (laughs) Like, It's so weird how similar you play to Arielle in terms of cutthroat competitive and a little bit insane. And so he he introduced us when we were both pregnant by bringing her to a werewolf night that I was having. And we were both convinced that he really wanted to see like just this grand battle royale between these two insanely competitive women. But instead, it really worked out swimmingly. And he's like, I knew you were both kind of looking for something bigger in the next chapter. And we're like, dude, you had no idea. You just wanted to see a giant fight. I love that you guys (laughs) met over a game night. Yeah, of course we did. (laughs) How long have you guys been friends? And then like, when did you decide to start working together? Juliana and I met and then started working together actually relatively close. We met when we were still pregnant. We were about eight months pregnant. No, like five months. Were we? It was only five months? Give us those extra three months. (laughs) Yeah, we weren't like ready to pop when we met. We had a few months of gaming while pregnant before the children came. (laughs) I don't know if I remember that. (laughs) But I believe you. It's all a blur. (laughs) Then we started going to escape rooms together. Juliana started inviting me to escape rooms with her because I was not on the A-list. So it was just like if one of her friends canceled. I didn't know her that well. Um, Except I was really good. So you started inviting me more because Juliana likes to win. (laughs) And then I think the kids, they were just walking. So they were about one when we started working together. They were like tottering around. Like we would try to just throw them together for play dates. And Arielle has chickens in her yard. So they would literally just be like tottering after the chickens as we're like there with papers flying everywhere trying to make the game. I am obsessed with the fact that you guys met while pregnant. And then while you guys both had little ones, like first time moms, little ones together. And you managed to like put this amazing partnership together. Like this is so impressive. I was a second time mom. So I want even more credit because I had two (laughs) tiny, insane people running around. Like I remember responding because we were trying to be super on top of Kickstarter. Like I remember literally like standing, bouncing one baby, like trying to type and like shove snacks in the other one. Like it was madness. Oh my God. Working moms. (laughs) How did two new mothers decide that now was the time to create a whole business and make a thing that didn't exist? How did that come about? Creating humans wasn't enough. (laughs) (laughs) I think it started just because we were going to escape rooms and we didn't want to pay for babysitting all the time. Also, at the time, all the escape rooms were in really sketchy neighborhoods. 
It's interesting because a lot of the escape rooms are still in the same places, but those neighborhoods have become a lot better now. But at the time, it was like, we had to get a babysitter, drive to this sketchy neighborhood. And Juliana was hosting these game nights. So we were like, well, let's just find one and play it at home. Gamers and escape room people, these are the same people. There's a tabletop escape room game out there somewhere. And there wasn't. It was just such a good idea. There should be an escape room that you could do at home. It kind of blew our minds that it did not exist. We just couldn't stop thinking about what it could be. like. And again, Arielle and I were fairly newer friends. And suddenly I'm like texting her 50 times a day being like, but what if this happened? And what if that happened? It was too good of an idea to not pursue. We were too excited about it. When you first emailed Lisa and I, when you emailed Room Escape Artists to tell us about your Kickstarter, Lisa and I were incredibly dubious of the idea. I think you asked if we would post about the Kickstarter and we were like, we will post a review. You both sent us a prototype. We invited over a collection of our escape room regulars, including one person who's pretty cynical. The group just loved it. We had a great time and we put out our review. You put out your Kickstarter. But one of the things that I've never had a chance to ask you is when you were making that first game, what were the key attributes of a real life escape room that you were trying to capture? The first thing we did actually was come up with a list of all the puzzles we'd ever done. And then we started thinking about, well, what makes an escape room different than a puzzle book? Yeah, we were really trying to think of what are our favorite things that happen in an escape room. And this is back in 2015. Escape rooms were not what everyone thinks of today, where like it's this gigantic cinematic technical thing. It was like you walk into a room and there's a locked drawer and a locked box. And so for us at that time, it was that feeling of when you can pop open a lock. Honestly, I still find it very satisfying. Like popping open a lock is one thing that makes it incredible for us. Surprise reveals when, you know, a bookshelf swings open, but something that's been there the whole time that suddenly is functioning in a new way, jump scares. <laughs> like, so we, we tried to think of what are all of our favorite elements from an escape room, the cooperative nature, obviously the puzzles, and then how can we translate all of those elements that we love so much into a boxed experience? One of the things that's different from a puzzle hunt is having a physical component. What were some of the other things that you felt differentiated an escape room in a box from a puzzle book or a puzzle hunt or anything like that? I mean, I think that was really the biggest thing, the physical element. And, and, you know, we did think about immersive, you know, honestly, we didn't even have the word for it at the time. You know, now we would say, well, we were trying to create an immersive experience. And we thought about that from the very beginning. But I think at the time, we were just like, well, we just want people to actually feel like they're there. So like one of the first things we talked about was we cannot convince people they are locked in their living room. Everyone knows how to open their front door. So how do we create a narrative where it makes some kind of sense. There's some kind of buy-in where you could say, okay, this could be happening in my living room or my dining room. The other thing that really sets it apart from kind of a puzzle book or a puzzle hunt is the sort of event nature of it. As, especially as a mom, one of the things that I super love about escape rooms is I just don't have that much time. And so being able to do, go and like do an experience, you know, that's one hour and I know it's going to consume my brain for that entire hour and then get to like sit around and talk to my friends about it. And that's the entire experience 
experience was really appealing for me. And I think one reason that escape rooms became such a huge part of my life was they were in these bite-sized chunks that I could take. Like I, I still have not done the MIT puzzle hunt, which, you know, I'm super curious about, but I cannot devote like three days straight with no sleep because then you need time to recover after. And if I take three days off from, you know, parenting, I, I will have no time to recover. It's a slog. I finally dipped my toes with a small, small team. The amount of images I had to sift through on the internet, I only did the grunt work. I wasn't even doing anything fun or helpful. I mean, I went deep into like eBay archives <laughs> to find <laughs> certain photos. So it is, wow. yeah, it's a time thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was really, really curious of how you managed to make the leap from you first debuted it on Kickstarter. And then after that, you got like a deal with Mattel to help produce. How do you even get the attention of a giant company like that? The amazing thing about Mattel is that their games team is so savvy and so great. They're on Kickstarter. You might think of them as this like giant up in an ivory tower, but like they are deep into games. And so the lead game designer at Mattel was actually one of our original backers on Kickstarters. They're out there. <laughs> For all of the different tabletop escape games on the market, very few of these product lines are published by large toy or game companies. When you strike a deal with a company like Mattel, what are the trade-offs? What are you as a creator gaining and what are you sacrificing to produce at that level? Nick Hayes, who's at Mattel, is this trained engineer and incredible artist. This is the type of person you know. I think a Mattel attracts and he has elevated our games and he is able to help us accomplish things in our games that I just don't know how else anyone else would be able to help us put this crazy thing into a box that can be sold at a decent price. We got to tour Mattel's chem lab where they showed us all the different inks and cool processes and cool materials of different things that they can do. And then, of course, the manufacturing is ginor like we we manufactured the first 3000 of our games and it was such a slog and it was so hard and we barely had a chance to create anything for a year while we focused on actually correctly manufacturing the game being able to hand over the manufacturing to Mattel has been incredible and then of course just the exposure when the game went on sale in Target, the numbers that we saw just from it being on a shelf in Target, you know, is something that would have been very challenging to try to accomplish on our own without them behind us. So it sounds like they gave you a bigger toolbox and then also took all of the manufacturing off of your shoulder so you could focus purely on just design. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really been an incredible experience. When we first came out with Escape Room in a Box, a lot of people were saying, be your own publisher. And this is a route that a lot of game designers take. And, you know, of course, yeah, if we did that, we would theoretically keep a lot more of the money. You know, we get a relatively small percentage of each box of Escape Room in a Box. But we'd have to use that money to pay who knows how many people to handle all of these things that I don't even know all of them, and we still probably wouldn't be able to get into Target. So, you know, that's a trade-off that people say is a trade-off and say is a negative, but I don't know that it the math actually works out that way. I mean, you guys are 
so incredibly proficient when it comes to producing games. I am signed up to help beta test your games. And the email I just received was like, we have seven different yeah. projects that we need people <laughs> to test on. And I'm like, how do they? I, I barely have time to even play test them. I don't know how you guys have time to go test seven different games with all these different groups. PG made the mistake of being like, I'm down to test anything. And so she's literally getting like 10 emails from me a day being like, okay, I'm super excited that you're playing this tomorrow. But how about next week playing this other one? This is where PG and I diverge. I hate beta testing so much. I have almost zero interest in doing it. But I really respect people who like to do it and like to give that feedback. Yeah, don't talk our playtesters out of this, David. <laughs> I love beta testing. Are you kidding me? Like, I get to play a game and criticize everything about it, and you guys are grateful? Like, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> well, we are super, super grateful to all of our playtesters because, yeah, the games are made in playtesting. That is absolutely, we've always said, coming up with ideas is really fun. Actually getting the game out and getting it on its feet and running it through group after group after group, that's where you're actually going to make the game. Are there things that you have to sacrifice when you're making a game that is produced in very large quantities and sold on store shelves like that? What What is it that you as a creator have to say, you know what, I, I can't make that interaction or I can't do it this way? It's a very different sort of game to make a game for Mattel. For one thing, all of the puzzles have to be language agnostic. Mattel has to be able to translate this into German and Italian. We'll sometimes do um, puzzles or games to promote for film or TV. And those are incredibly limited runs that only go to, you know, 50 people or 200 people. Those are where we get to pour in like, oh, <laughs> this, this game is essentially all of the language dependent puzzles that I've come up with that I'm excited about that we can never put into a Mattel game. So they're all going in here or, you know, we got to put one, we had an interaction with fire. Oh, or boiling water. We had boiling water for a recent one. Yes. Not a mass market game. You can't <laughs> be like, this is on a shelf at Target. Everyone take it home. And now please pour boiling water really near your hand. Right. <laughs> and then there's also just the bottom line of, we have sat with the Mattel team and we've been like, we've got to cut 17 cents off this game. What can we change to get shave those 17 cents off the game? Because they have these very specific targets of this is what it has to cost to manufacture. This is what we're going to sell it for. And so you have to have trade-offs where you're like, oh, this plastic piece is fun. But if we have to lose this plastic piece or this plastic piece, which one are we going to lose? And making sure that it lines up with their numbers and their accounting. You've spoken a little bit about how arduous it was to produce that initial run of 3000. Is there like a story or a moment that really captures what it was like to try and see that production run through. When we were thinking up Escape Room in a Box, we were like, we have two tins and they both have to have a three-digit lock on them. And we don't want the wrong combination ending up on the wrong tin because that would ruin the game. So we decided that we were going to have red locks on one tin and black locks on another tin. And we kept getting these samples in. Every time we got the sample in, somehow the red one wasn't set correctly. And then the next time I was like, we think the red one wasn't set correctly again or it broke. But every time the samples came in, the red lock would not open. And they were like, no, it was definitely set. It's the exact same as the black lock. It couldn't have broken. And yet, it's always the red lock. It's never the black lock. We took the locks apart. They seemed to be the same. 
But what we finally did is we took all the red locks and all the black locks we had, we set them all. I put them in a bag and I put them in the dryer to kind of try to maybe approximate what it would be like coming across the ocean in a crate in a game box. And sure enough, we pulled them out and, you know, I think I put in 10 of each and eight of the red locks had unset, were not able to be opened anymore. And all the black locks were fine. And so we go back to the manufacturer with this and they're like, but they're exactly the same. We're like, okay, cool. We totally believe you. They're exactly the same, but can we just use black locks for like all of them? (laughs) They were not thrilled with us, but we were like, there's just incontrovertible evidence that the red locks are like, (laughs) I hear you that it's just a coat of paint, but somehow that coat of paint is severely messing things up and we cannot have this. So they never found out. What was the difference? No. They never believed us. So did you, but there wasn't a need to distinguish between the locks, was there? We wanted to make sure that when the factory was putting the locks on the box, that they know there was a skull tin and a biohazard tin. And so like the red lock goes on the skull tin and the black lock goes on the biohazard tin. So they got all of the black locks on the biohazard tin, and then they had to order more of the black locks to come in that they then put on the Sculpton. We made 3,000 of that initial game, and we only had, I think there were maybe one or two people who were like, hey, this just didn't open. But for the most part, they all opened, and I don't think that would have been the case with the Red Locks, so... QC on that must have been a nightmare, like the quality control. Oh, disaster. Because even if one sheet of paper is in a box when it's supposed to be out of the box and you need that sheet of puzzle to figure out how to get into the box, it ruins everything. And we felt so vindicated because, you know, this is the first game that we ever made and it was such a nightmare to make. We had our first factory quit on us because we were too exacting on what needs to be where and how it needs to go. Like they sent us a few samples, which are called white samples, where there's not even anything printed. It's just like this size page is in this box and blah, blah, blah. It was wrong. And we kept going back to them. And then they just quit on us. They were like, we're not dealing with you. So we had to go and find another factory that managed to get it done. And then when Mattel made it, Mattel said to us, this is the most complicated game we've ever manufactured. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's really hard. I'm really not surprised because in any other tabletop game that I think I've ever played, except for maybe a couple of legacy games, as long as everything is in the box, you're good to go. Yeah. But in this case, if one thing is in the wrong spot, then the whole sequencing breaks and you may not even be able to solve everything and open up all of the contents. Even in most games, you could say like, hey, this card that I'm supposed to have isn't here. And they'll be like, oh, no problem. We'll send you a replacement. And it's annoying. Maybe you have to wait a few weeks and then you can play it. But with ours, you're halfway through a game and you realize the whole thing is broken and you're not even going to realize that you're missing something until you've gotten to a point of being incredibly frustrated and like gone to the answer booklet. And that's how you figured out you were missing a thing. The whole thing is just ruined at that point. I do wonder if it'd be different now, because to circle back to what David's story about when we first reached out, you know, this is... This was the first game. I mean, this was the first tabletop escape room game. There are other games now. If you look at Box One or or Dollhouse, or, you know, there's so many games or any of the legacy games. There's so many games now where you play them and things do have to be put in specific places. But when we were trying to explain that back before anyone had any concept, we couldn't be like, well, look at a different tabletop escape room game or look at a legacy game. It's kind of like that. We had no language to get the point across. 
you were dealing with the same problems that early escape room owners were dealing with when they were trying to get their businesses started and they were trying to explain to landlords and fire marshals and zoning boards, this is the thing I'm doing. <laughs> that was way harder than actually getting the business open and being financially successful in the early days. Whereas now, pretty much people understand what the core concept is. You say I'm opening up an escape room and your local officials will pretty much know what you're talking about. The hard part is to gain the traction and to get the audience, which was easier when there just were fewer people who were competing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I certainly wouldn't change a thing. And I'm so, so glad that this all came out when it did and that it was an idea whose time had come. And I'm so, so grateful that we've kind of been able to ride the start of the wave of escape room popularity. I'm glad you did too. I know you're both fans of all of these low production run games that are being made by all sorts of people. Who are some of the designers in the tabletop escape room space that have been inspiring you over the past year or two? What makes their games special? Rita Orlov and her work is just incredible. Like she's an artist and so everything just looks absolutely stunning. It's well-clued, innovative use of puzzle. Like so much of what we see from her is just so, so cool and so inspiring. I also really love Bluefish games. I think they hit that sweet spot of just like, it's just delightful. It is clever and delightful. And I've really been enjoying their work. I so love their newspapers. Yeah. Their, their Inks Gazettes. <laughs> Literally have it right here. They're just really whimsical. Yes. I think whimsy is a, a great word to describe their design. And I love it. One of my favorite games recently was Shine On, was an immersive theater company, has really transitioned well into creating immersive at-home experiences, and they've been putting puzzles in them. So these are boxes that you get, and there are significant acted components without giving too much away, so that it really like rides a line between immersive theater and a game. And I love that. I think that is really the direction that escape rooms and immersive theater are going is that they're going to eventually essentially be one thing um, that we're just going to be an immersive this is going to be the immersive world uh, and you might have something that is more game oriented or more theater oriented but everything's going to have some aspects of both and i think that what they've been doing um, so they have a box right now that you can get from a local tavern in la called roguelike tavern so what shinon has been doing with that where you get this box and you get brought into this world and you interact and you solve puzzles. It's just really innovative and fun. And we should say too, that in addition to the one through Roguelike, they also have one that I believe is nationally available that they're shipping all over the US at least um, called Welcome Home that comes with brownies. We played it here in LA when it came with a whole dinner, but I was like, oh, now it comes with brownies. That's even better. So you get a whole puzzle experience plus brownies, which is like, what more could you want? And you're all learning something about Juliana, which is that she would prefer brownies over dinner basically any day. Yeah. Obviously. We share that in common. Yeah. <laughs> so we will also put these in the show notes so you guys can also um, look up some of these other amazing designers as well. You've designed marketing games for the CW's Nancy Drew or Fox's Prodigal Son, among many others. 
What kinds of challenges are unique to making games that promote a brand for a really big media conglomerate? It has different limitations, but I really enjoy that. Like we like playing within the limitations. So it's really cool to say, here's the IP and here's the world. And you need to make sure that it fits in the world, that it feels a part of the world, that it's going to draw people into the world, which is a really fun thing to do. I, in terms of a challenge, I, you know, it can be a little challenging. There have been times where we've needed things like on actors, Instagram accounts or stuff like that. And so having these asks where it's like, it's very specific because it's for a puzzle. And I know he did this one thing, but it wasn't quite what it needed to be. And so we need to go back to this actor who has 8 million other things to do than like make sure, you know, this puzzle works and like have him actually go and do the thing it needs to be for the puzzle to work. I guess not all actors can be Neil Patrick Harris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they all do try. Like, it, I think that's what makes it harder. It's not like, eh, whatever. Every actor that we have worked with has put so much effort in. I remember for Nancy Drew, the actor who plays Nick, Tanji, we had to get him the materials in Scotland. We weren't sure what the time period would be, so we made it as simple as possible. We were just like, you just have to write on this thing and then film it. And he shows up on camera and he did the full art project. <laughs> I had thought about writing it down, but I was like, no, this is too much to ask. He made the paper look really old. Like he must have done the whole tea staining thing, like burn the edges on his own made it the best it could have been, like more than we were comfortable asking for. Everyone we've worked with, they've been so into it. They just, as Juliana said, in some cases haven't always gotten it right. And then we feel really bad going back and asking because they are so kind and so into it. You know, I think that we have expected there to be more challenges than there have been in general. Yeah, I think we've been very lucky to work with really excellent people. A big challenge is often scheduling, because by the time they're looking to invest budget into marketing materials, they're expecting that turnaround to be pretty quick. And it's very specific. This is premiering on this date. So it needs to be in influencers and press hands before that date. Often, they'll contract with whatever swag bag people who just need to buy the stuff and put it in the box and there's your swag bag. And for us, we need the playtesting time, which is a significant chunk of time. So the turnaround times on those projects are generally the most challenging part of them is making sure that we get in adequate playtesting before it goes to the printers or whatever. It's funny, whenever I'm designing like you, I'm designing for people who aren't in the puzzle business. I'm not designing for escape room companies. And playtesting is always the thing that catches people off guard. They're just like, oh, you, you mean this doesn't get birthed from your head perfect? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we've started really prepping, you know, anytime we meet with a company and submit a proposal, we, we will tell them very clearly up front, you're paying us to design the thing. And that's fine. It's like this much to design. What you're really paying us for is to play test this thing and make sure that it works and iterate and iterate until it is working well for the vast majority. And we've had some companies that tried to say like, what if you just give us the design and, and we'll play test and it's fine. You don't need to spend the time and we're like no, it doesn't work that way <laughs> like you have to play test to know what you're doing my joke is i do the design for free you're paying for the play test i think we haven't said it in quite those words but we do try to explain that 
we had the chance to work together on the pilot episode for Create the Escape, which was pretty wild experience. Totally. What did you learn from designing puzzles for television? Before we get to this, what was Create the Escape? Create the Escape was a uh, television show that was made where kids would essentially design and build escape rooms for their parents to run through. So it was really, it was a wild thing getting to fly to New York and they were filming in these beautiful uh, studios. We were working with David as puzzle consultants. So just helping to kind of come up with, you know, inspire the kids to come up with the puzzles that inceptioning yeah (laughs) (laughs) puzzles that the children could then do i think a, a big thing in terms of designing for television we were trying to think of what would be the most big and visually interesting thing that could be done trying to make sure everything's happening on a really large scale so people can follow along at home it was interesting going back and forth with notes and trying to make sure that the puzzles lined up with the narrative but were still kind of had something about them that was interesting we had Miles on as a previous guest, and he designs puzzles for Survivor, for the Survivor Challenges. So he touched a little bit on the difficulties of a puzzle that looks and works good on television, which is totally different than having it work well in a different medium, like in an escape room in a box or an actual escape room. Yeah, because you never want to just sit and watch people stare and think about something or like fidget with tiny pieces. And so everything had to be in kind of a, a larger, grander way. Having worked with you both a bit, you both have very different work styles. What do you feel is the other's superpower? I would say Ariel has a lot of superpowers. Ariel has incredible visual design skills, which I have not at all. <laughs> you know, when we're working with a client and we want to present the ideas to them, having a gorgeous visual deck that really helps them see exactly what it's going to be really makes a huge difference. That is one of her superpowers. She is truly the optimism of our wild optimist name. Like she just believes that things are going to, things are going to work and things are going to be great. And like, of course we should go for this crazy golden ring because of course we're going to get it. And so I, I always credit her for being the like driving force. Those are her, her superpowers. And she's a, just a fantastic writer as well. You know, a lot of our stuff is very narrative um, and she, she's great with that. Aww. So that makes Juliana the wild of the wild activists. <laughs> <laughs> Although truthfully, um, I think one of Juliana's superpowers is that she needs a lot less sleep than I do, which so- sounds crazy, but like some of our play tests can take quite a long time and I don't have the stamina to stay up super because we have to start after the kids go to bed. And I just don't have the stamina to stay up for all of them. Juliana, like, is able to do a lot more than I am. Just, like, physically, like, able to do more playtests later at night. Able to go out more nights of a week without, like, losing it. I'm, I'm a very delicate flower in that way. <laughs> so thank goodness for Juliana. Juliana also takes care of all of the stuff. I, I think I'm just kind of the crazy artist of the two of us because she'll, like, do all the emails and all the accounting and everything like that and all the stuff that just makes my brain hurt. So I don't know, you know, with we couldn't have two of me. I, like we wouldn't function. And it's 
so wonderful because it's a complete coincidence because as we said, we didn't know each other that well when we started working together. So the fact that we do have different um, skill sets has been really great. It sounds like you guys have such good synergy. <laughs> we have, Juliana has so many superpowers. I mean, she was talking about the decks we do earlier and we've been doing more and more decks. We do a fair bit of consulting for large companies, for things that they may want to do in the future. And so those entire projects are turning in a deck that then might turn into a bigger deck if the project gets bought or moves to the next stage. Can you explain what a deck is exactly for people who might not know? Yeah, it's a presentation to explain ideas. You guys both do this full time now. What did you do in a previous life? And do you feel like that carried over into helping you guys do what you do now? Well, we were both writers. So 100%. Yeah, we're still writing all the time. <laughs> I don't think it's changed. We've just added and the writing is in a different format sometimes. What type of writing? I did more film. She did more TV, like screenplay. We both studied drama. I used to act as well, which I think has helped with, you know, like speaking at conventions and panels and stuff like that. Juliana's so much better at speaking. <laughs> Ariel gets terrified. I do. <laughs> awesome. That makes total sense to me that you guys are both writers. I feel like a lot of game designers came from a writing background. Also, just a drama background. Like we went to the Immersive Design Summit. So it's like escape rooms and theme parks and immersive theater and just all of these different worlds coming together. And they said, raise your hand if you have a theater degree. And like 80 or 90% of the people raise their hand. So it's all the crazy drama kids now making like these cool experiences out in the world. Lisa and I felt like we were in the wrong place when they asked that question and idea. <laughs> This past week, we just announced that Recon, the Reality Escape Convention, our convention for immersive gaming, is going to be entirely digital again in 2021. It will be hosted online on August 22nd and 23rd. You can find all of the videos from last year's convention on the Room Escape Artist YouTube channel, and you can find out more about this year's event at realityescapecon.com where you can sign up for our newsletter to learn more as we start to release the information about all of our speakers and vendors and sponsors. We have so many wonderful things already lined up, and I cannot wait to inform you of all of it. This week, we closed up our launch contest. We will be announcing the winners soon, but I would like to take a second to thank the folks who donated all of the games that we are giving away. And there are a whole bunch of them. We have games from Perplexers Puzzles, who makes Survivor Challenge replicas. They are so much fun. CU Adventures, the makers of some of my favorite digital escape games from the past year. They're going to be our guests next week. The Wild Optimists. Wonder who those folks are. We're giving away their Escape Room in a Box products, as well as some of their other games. And finally, Exploding Kittens, Alan Lee, our very first guest, gave us a whole bunch of different games that they've made. They're just a silly good time. Those will be off in the mail to our winners over the next couple of weeks. Thank you all who signed up for it. And thanks again to Perplexers Puzzles, CU Adventures, The Wild Optimists, and Exploding Kittens for providing all of the prizes. I think we have not heard much of anything about your upcoming 
escape room in a box game. In fact, I don't even know that there is one. Can you spill any beans? <laughs> we can finally spill some beans. Oh, good. The next escape room in a box will be called Escape Room in a Box Time Drifters. And it's actually going to be two games coming out this fall. So it should be available on Amazon, September 1st of this year, 2021. Congrats. That's exciting. Thank you. As we say, we're really excited about this game. It's a different type of game than we've ever designed. Somewhat kind of comes out of the pandemic thinking, right? So it's two different games where you can play each game on your own. And then at the end, there is a third meta game that you can play over any video chat platform, but you need someone who's played the other game in order to do the third part. Does the other person also need to have their own versions of both games? Or could it be like, I played one, the other person's played the second game, and then does it still work that way? So the way that it works is one person with their game will have a set of information or instructions and they will give it to the people who have the other game. And so the people with the other game will then use the components from their physical game and the information from the people with the other game to put it all together to solve a puzzle. For example, say David has Time Drifters 1 and PG has Time Drifters 2. And David's like, okay, guys, I need some kind of pink flower to input into my answer sheet here. And PG's like, well, I have a carnation and an iris. Well, it can't be the iris, so you are probably looking for the carnation, right? So you guys are going to have different sets of information that you both need. But only need for the third game. That you need, exactly, only for the third game. Cool. When we're talking about a third game, are we talking about like a full length game that is the same length of, as what we play in the base games? Or is this like a meta puzzle, kind of a smaller thing? Give me a sense of scale. It is not just one puzzle. It is a set of puzzles that form a story just like the other games. It is just a slightly shorter set of puzzles. Like say, you know, I want to play both of those games, but then does that spoil me that I have both sets of information now to play the third Not game? at all. So they are completely separate games, all of them. And so you can absolutely play the first game and someone else plays the second game and together you play the third game. And then you can switch and play each other's first game in its entirety, it's entirely separate puzzles. There's there's nothing that would be spoiled beyond you might have some knowledge of their components, but even that is going to be an incomplete knowledge. Interesting. Okay, so that that would be the recommended order then, right? Say like you play that one standalone game, play the the technic the third game, I guess, and then swap and play each Correct. other's game. That would be the idea. Yeah, and it, it works. You can either play it over web conferencing software where you're communicating across the country, across the world, or you can play it where you're all in the same room and just on opposite sides of the table. So it works either way. And this is a game in a box physical components, right? Because I know there's games that are similar to this that are all virtual games, right? There's, you know, iPlayer1 has a screen that looks totally different than Player2's screen. You swap information uh, and you figure out each other's puzzles. So this is kind of like a physical version of that. Absolutely, yes. It's the classic escape room in a box, random plastic components that you get to play around with. (laughs) Oh, I, 
I didn't even say one of the best things is this is actually going to be at a lower price point than previous games. So each of these games is going to be $14.99. Normally they're $29.99. So it's half price, but it's still you get a full gaming experience and the bonus secret third game. That's a heck of a deal. And you could pass it on to a friend to play, right? Yeah, our games will always have the, the repack and replay and reprint options. I feel like Juliana undersold random plastic <laughs> components a bit here. These two games, uh, I, and I can't say too much, but these two games, both of them have some new plastic components and mechanics that are just really, really cool and I'm really proud of. And the engineers at Mattel are geniuses and I'm still not quite sure how we dreamed up something that I was pretty sure was impossible and yet is going to be on shelves. How long have you been working on this? I think it was back in March. They were like, you know what would be cool <laughs> if you could play a game with people who were in a different physical space, but it really mattered that like you had your pieces and they have their pieces and you're all working together to put those pieces together. I can't imagine what would inspire <laughs> such, a, such a request. <laughs> And I know people who've bought the same game and just played them with their friends in different places. And you just, you know, like, oh, hey, have you seen this piece yet? Or have you solved this puzzle yet? So you can, you know, you can do that with our previous games. What's so cool about this one is that it's different and it, it's meant to have different players playing different parts that come together. In the creation of this game through playtesting, initially we said, you know, just communicate with the other people. And what we found was sometimes happening was people would hold up a thing on the camera, the other team would take a picture of it, and then the other team would just like kind of silently scurry off and be solving on their own. And so we changed it to, you absolutely cannot show them anything. It must all be communicated. And that really upped the fun factor for the players because suddenly it was so much more of a connected team effort and watching the different ways that people describe different things was a puzzle in and of itself and just so fun to see. Juliana, Ariel, thank you so much. You're both brilliant, wonderful, and so much fun to talk to. The Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com. You can check out Room Escape Artist for all of your escape room reviews, tips for players, designers, we're running game jams, we have tours when the world isn't screwed up, as well as conventions, and hopefully we'll be having announcements coming out soon for Recon 2021. Hope to see you there.